in the new covenant, there is promised for the believer everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. Now that's something that we just don't experience every day, is it? We all experience joy. But most things that we experience that bring us joy are fleeting at best. But the new covenant promises the believer an inheritance of everlasting joy. God had foretold of this happy blessing in the prophets, and specifically, he spelled it out in that particular phrase, everlasting joy, no less than three times in the prophet Isaiah. There's no need to turn and read these, but just kind of listen to them as we begin, and we'll make our way to Philippians chapter 4. It says in Isaiah 35 verse 10 that the ransomed of the Lord will return And they will come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The promise is of an unmixed joy. A joy that is everlasting, and a joy that sees sorrow and sighing fleeing. All that's left is this unmixed joy. Again, that very same promise is given in Isaiah 51 in verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In Isaiah 61, in verses 1 through 9, we have pointed to us the very clear and unmistakable work of the Messiah. And in his work, we are told in Isaiah 61, verse 7, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land, everlasting joy will be theirs. Three times this phrase occurs in the Bible. And all three are in the book of Isaiah. And all three are pointing to the new covenant work or the effect of the new covenant work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish we had time to go back and go through Isaiah again. Um, Some of my church are thinking, oh, don't do that to us again. It's four years. It was a long time. But... uh, We just finished that last year, and it was a wonderful book to look at. But what a a glorious promise in the New Covenant that God would promise to you in Christ Jesus a joy that knows no end. It knows no abatement. There's no fluctuation. There is no day in everlasting joy that you have less joy than you had before. And we'll see as we move through this today, in fact, our joy will only increase. This everlasting joy is the promise, the possession, and should be the pursuit of every believer throughout his days and on into eternity. It is promised in the new covenant. It is possessed in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and it is to be pursued in response to God's command that we would rejoice always. Now, we have been for several weeks, for those of you that have been with us, considering the mutual and corporate pursuit of everlasting joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this end, we have been giving somewhat of an overview study of Paul's brief epistle to the church in Philippi. We have considered that toward the end of pursuing everlasting joy, we must do certain things. We, as believers in Christ together, must adopt the mind of Christ and have a different way of thinking about everything. We must think, in a sense, like Christ thinks. We must, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude or this mindset in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We must further seek Christ's interest above our own. We must be like Timothy. You might recall Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. He was the one that Paul said, I have no one else like him. There were many others that Paul mentioned in his band of merry men, but none were like Timothy. Timothy considered the interests of Christ above all else. And we must do the same. Thirdly, we saw that we must follow Christ's pattern if we are to pursue everlasting mutual joy. We must follow Christ's pattern, humiliation before glory. Humiliation, then glory. You and I must not be the theologian of glory as we saw last week. We must rather be theologians of the cross. Well, finally, we see today that in pursuing everlasting joy, we will be sharing Christ's joy in following Scripture's command to rejoice in the Lord always. The call to rejoice, the call to be glad, the call to have joy is, as we have seen, scattered throughout the book of Philippians. In fact, we've taken time to look at some 16 different occurrences and maybe some other uh, potential occurrences of this idea in the book of Philippians. The Philippian believers were pointed to the subject of joy over and over as a driving theme of this little epistle. Well, for our purposes today, we want to turn to Philippians chapter 4 and focus on one of those places of emphasis by the apostle. Philippians chapter 4 in verse 4. It's a Little text, but it's loaded with wonderful and rich truth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul simply says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In the Greek text, it's only seven words, and two of those words call forth joy amongst the people of God. From this brief but profound passage, I'd like to make three observations, follow that up with three applications if we have time. So if you're a note taker, let me go ahead and give those to you, three observations that we're going to find here from the text. Observation one is the inescapable call 
to everlasting joy, the inescapable call to everlasting joy. Secondly, the Christological realm of everlasting joy. The Christological realm of everlasting joy. And finally, the eschatological hope of everlasting joy. The inescapable call, the Christological realm, and the eschatological hope of everlasting joy. Well, let's think on these three things just for a moment today. The inescapable call of everlasting joy. Now, I know that the conjugation of a verb is not the thing that you were hoping for this morning when you got up and said, can't wait for the sermon, I hope, I hope. I hope he conjugates a verb. Well, for the one person in here that might have possibly woken up with such a desire, you and I are going to talk for just a minute. The rest of you are going to, I hope, bear with us and maybe maybe check in every now and then. I beg your indulgence for just a moment. I think this particular idea is something important for us to see. Think about the conjugation of a verb, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this takes me all the way back to grammar school. You've got tense and voice and mm, mood. You got person, you got number. This is hard. It's just like school, all right? No wonder it's no wonder it's tough. Well, I want you to think about these things because this particular verb is a gripping term. No, it's not gripping like the uh, scene for the Battle of Helm's Deep you know, in the Lord of the Rings or something like that, but I think it's attention-getting nonetheless. Think about its tense, the tense of this verb. It is a present tense verb. These are the things they tell you in seminary. By the way, Julius said, they say don't do these things in preaching, most likely. I'm sure Fred would say don't conjugate a verb in a sermon. So you can turn me into Fred later on. The tense calls, being a present tense verb, What it's calling for is an ongoing action and the adoption of a new habit of life. It's telling you to do something over and over and over and over and over and over again. One reason this becomes very difficult in pursuing joy in the Christian life is because you practice it until it doesn't work. And then you give up and you go on to something else. It's kind of like the way I treat push-ups. You know, every now and then, I do a push-up. A push-up. Don't laugh. You didn't do any push-ups this morning either, unless you're, you know, some young buff man or whatever. Don't wake up and do push-ups. I wake up and get out of bed. And if I don't hurt myself on the way to the bathroom, getting dressed and getting to my office, I consider that a success. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, joy and the pursuit of joy is supposed to be something that's difficult to pursue. And it requires work. And it requires effort. And listen, it requires repetition. And you've got to form a new habit in your life or you will never form a new habit. The voice of this particular tense, it is active. And what that is doing is it's placing responsibility on the Philippians themselves to do it. 
I can't be joyful for you. And you can't be joyful for me. I can be joyful and I can share my joy with you. You can be joyful and share your joy with me, but I can't do it for you. You must do it yourself. Or to say this another way, rejoicing in the Lord is part and parcel with working out our salvation with fear and trembling. The very command that Paul gave them in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, but to will and to work for his good pleasure, his good purpose. But you've got to work. Number three, consider the mood of the verb. No, I don't mean it's a moody verb, happy or sad. No, it's, it's, it's the mood of command. In other words, we're talking here that the call for joy is inescapable. God commands you to be joyful. I'm not saying God commands you to be giddy. I'm not saying that God commands you to be happy in sin. No. Chrysostom, in his sermons on the book of Philippians, I found it interesting. He opens his his particular sermon on this particular text, talking about how the Bible tells us, blessed are those who mourn. But then the Bible calls us to do what? To be joyful. And you're like, So what is it? Well, I am supposed to mourn over sin. I am supposed to have my heart broken over my sin and even the sin of others that causes grief to the soul. But I am to find joy in God. These are not in contradiction. He's not telling you to mourn and be joyful about the same thing. I should mourn about sin, but be joyful in Christ. Further and finally... Not only the tense and the voice and the mood, but consider the person and the number here. Let's put these two together. We note that this call for personal responsibility in the adoption of a new habit and obedience to Christ is given, listen, to the gathered church as a whole. It's plural. This responsibility, this command, this duty, this call to practice habitual joy is not something that simply rests on you or on you. It rests on us all. Isn't that good news? Because you may struggle with the pursuit of joy. But two are better than one, right? For when one falls down, the other can help him up. Now, it's not always like this in marriage. There are days in marriage that Janice is having a lousy day And I'm having a lousy day too. And I'm like, great. She's not even going to be a help to me in helping me not feel lousy. But usually, usually it's true that when I'm struggling, God gives my wife grace to come in and help me up off the ground. And when she's struggling, I hope, (laughs) somewhere in 33 years, maybe, remote possibility, I've been a help to pick her up off the ground. Two are better than one. You might think, well, great, I'm single. Look around you. Look around you. You are not alone. You are not alone. 
If you are in the body of Christ, you are not alone. Single man, single woman, single mother, single father, old widow, old widower, you in the body of Christ are never alone. Never alone. Now, you can isolate yourself. We do pretty good with that, right? The Bible talks about that. He who isolates himself is what? Not wise. That's another way the Bible says, he who isolates himself is foolish. So don't be foolish. Be wise. Be with your brothers and sisters. Be regularly with your brothers and sisters. If you can't be with them physically, be praying for them. Be thinking of them. Consider them. Call them. Reach out to them. Find them. And I'm somewhat off script, but let's come back to the conjugation of the verb because I know you were excited about that. This habit must be continually practiced. It must be continually practiced by you. It must be so because God has given it to you as a command. But it must not be done alone. It must be pursued in the body of Christ. It should be noted. It should be noted or recalled that This obligation to joy in the Lord is not exclusive to the Philippian believers. But in fact, this obligation to rejoice in God rests upon all men. Turn to Psalm 67. I want you to see this in the collection we have of the Psalms. All men indeed are called and obligated to have joy before God, to be glad in God, to rejoice in God. Psalm 67. Psalm 67, verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Hmm. Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verse 1. Psalm 97, verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Psalm 98. Psalm 98, verse 4, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. These are the kinds of texts that the early church saw. And Paul picks up on texts like this in his his own writings as an impetus for missions to carry the church to the nations of the world where men are not delighting in God, men are not rejoicing in God, and they need to delight in God, and they need to rejoice in God because God is worthy of the worship of men from every tribe and tongue and language and nation in the world. Look in Psalm 100. Psalm 100, a wonderful, brief little psalm. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. 
All throughout the earth are to shout joyfully, to serve with gladness, and to come before God with joyful singing. Now, this particular psalm has been well known through a variety of psalters. It's been included in over the years. In 1561, there was a man by the name of William Keith who had fled England under the persecution of Mary in 1566, and she had fled to the continent, and she had gone to Geneva under the ministry of John Calvin, along with men like John Knox. When Keith fled there to Geneva, he was helpful in translating and writing, putting together the Geneva Bible, and he also worked on a composition of various psalms in meter. And perhaps the best known of his hymns is this, All people that on earth do dwell. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with fear, his praise foretell. Come ye before him and rejoice. The Lord ye know is God indeed. Without our aid he did us make. We are his folk. He did us feed. And for his sheep he doth us take. Oh, enter then his gates with praise. Approach with joy his courts unto Praise, laud, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do. For why, it asks, for why? The Lord our God is good. His mercy is forever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Or you might consider the opening line of the rendition of the same psalm by Isaac Watts when he wrote these words before Jehovah's awful throne, ye nations bow with sacred joy. Truly, this obligation rests on all men, but even more so upon believers who have tasted of the glories of Christ in the gospel. You might recall our own confession in chapter 19 on the law in paragraph 5 speaks of the moral law of God forever binding all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. It goes on and says, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the creator who gave it, neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much more strengthen this obligation. It is indeed the moral will of God for men to joyfully give him glory. And even more so does this obligation rest upon you and me under the gospel. In the Articles of the Faith of the Horsley Down Church, where Benjamin Keach, our brother, pastored, they wrote these words, We believe that God requires obedience of man. And that the rule of that obedience is the moral law as it is in the hands of Christ, which teacheth all persons their duty to God and to man. And to sum, the sum of all being this, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. And that though the law is abolished as a covenant of works and is so considered, we are dead to it, and that dead to us yet. It remains as a rule of life and righteousness forever. The call to joy in the Lord resting upon the believer is an inescapable call to everlasting joy. 
With that in mind, consider a second observation back in our text in Philippians chapter 4. Paul calls upon the church to rejoice, not just anywhere, but to rejoice always in the Lord. He says there in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now this, this phrase or concept of being in Christ or in the Lord is a favorite of Paul in his epistles. I counted no less than 91 times that this is used in Paul's epistles, or rather the whole of the New Testament, uh, either being in Christ or in Jesus or in Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's used in the New Testament these 91 times. All but four are found in Paul's letters. And one of those four is mentioned in the book of Acts in reference to Paul's own ministry of speaking to men about having faith in Christ. This little phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, or in the Lord Jesus, or in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a theologically loaded phrase and experientially deeply personal. Theologically speaking, this is pointing to the new sphere of existence for the believer, a new realm in which he lives, being joined to, or as theologians often say, united to Christ. We speak of union with Christ. One definition of union with Christ, there are several places we could probably turn, but a basic definition here is that, that union with Christ is a basic dimension of the doctrine of salvation by being identified with Christ in his atoning death as well as in his resurrection power, Believers obtain his righteousness and his vitality. We are united to, we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we won't go through 91 texts. That's not what we need to do. But I do want to direct your attention to a few texts as we find them in the book of Philippians itself. So look with me, if you would, in Philippians, and let's start in chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. That, that phrasing of being in something is used two different times. One, it's used you know, spatially or geographically. They're in Philippi. They're in this little town called Philippi, this Roman colony. But all the while that they're in Philippi, physically speaking, they are in Christ, spiritually speaking. In fact, later on, he's going to say things like, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, saying that to a group of Romans would have almost been insulting because Roman citizenship was a prize to these, to these particular uh, Philippians. But their true citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Why? Because they're in Christ. They're joined to Christ their citizenship is now surpassingly so somewhere else. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and I take this phrase, in Christ, 
to be qualitative of each of those particular realities. They have encouragement. They have consolation of love. They have fellowship of the Spirit. They have affection. They have compassion. Where do they have these things? They have them in Christ by virtue of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. They are to have the very mindset of Christ. Or to borrow from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 16, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're connected to Christ. We're joined to Christ. In chapter 3, in verse 3, it says that we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, or we make our boast in Christ Jesus. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in him. May I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. By virtue of having faith and trust in Christ, Paul has the hope that he'll be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness provided for him. Chapter 3 and verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This being united to Christ is a place of protection and safety for them in their growth in grace. Chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The very riches of heaven are available to you where? In Christ Jesus. But it's not just for you and it's not just for the Philippians. Look what it says in Philippians 4.21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is the... This is the virtual treasure house of Christ made available to you by faith in Christ Jesus alone. When I think of the riches and glory supplied to them by being in Christ Jesus, I think of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look back over there for a moment, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 3, blessed be, sorry, I'll wait for you there, I'm, I'm probably getting ahead, I'm sorry. Ephesians 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where? In Christ. You see a, you see a pattern here, all right? Over and over again, in Christ Jesus, the riches of glory are ours. Every heavenly blessing in Christ is ours. And notice what it says Oh, just let's go to Colossians. You know, the first week we did this in this month, I had like six pages of notes, and I finished in time. And the next week I got bold, and I got, I got another page. We finished in time. The next week got bold, I got two more pages. Finished in time, I think. I don't know what happened last week. And today I've got two additional. It's not going to happen. 
We're going to try. Look in Colossians chapter 2. Love this. Let's, let's go to verse 9. Colossians 2, 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. You have been made complete, adequate, sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness, Peter said, is found through the knowledge of him. Through being in Christ, we have everything we need for life and for godliness. I really just wish God would give me some more blessings so I can, so I can live this Christian life. Do you see how, what a dishonor that is to Christ? And what a, what a lack of acknowledgement it is of all that he has given you in Christ already. I don't need more blessing. I have what? I have all I could ever hope to have and ever need because I have Christ and I'm united to him. Well, it's through this union that all that is true of Christ and his redemptive work is now made available to me. G.K. Beale has written a work recently, Union with the Resurrected Christ. And Beale makes this comment. He said, when believers come into union with Christ, they are imprinted. He gives us kind of a stamp imagery. They are imprinted with all the benefits that Christ possessed at his resurrection and his ascension. Calvin closes Book two of the Institutes with a laying out of all the benefits that Christ has won for us in his mediatorial work, his cross work in particular. And then he turns the page and opens up in, in chapter one, book one, of, or book three, chapter one, section one, and he speaks to the issue of how is it that all the blessings of Christ's work become ours? So I've got all these blessings in Christ. How do I lay hold of those? Well, it's by way of union. And this is affected by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. He asks this question. We must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. He says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, cut off, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. And for this reason, he is called our head. And the firstborn among many brethren. We also in turn are said to be engrafted into him in Romans eleven seventeen, And in Galatians 3, it says that we put on Christ. For as we have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Does that remind us of our study that we had a few months ago in Ephesians chapter 4? We're growing up into our head who is Christ. And in growing up into our head, it was Christ. We are, we are laying hold one thing after another. We're finding out, we're discovering what is ours in him. It is true, Calvin says, that we obtain this by faith. Yet since we see that not all indiscriminately embrace that communion with Christ, 
which is offered through the gospel, reason itself teaches us to climb higher and to examine into the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all of his benefits. Richard Gaffin makes the comment in his work, In the Fullness of Time, he says that this union is so central, so pivotal, that without it, the saving work of Christ, the once-for-all redemption that he has accomplished, remains useless and of no value. Union, Gaffin says, is the all-or-nothing reality on which everything depends in the application of salvation. I must have Christ or I have nothing. This union further is not a partial union. I, I love this. As if one can share in some benefits without others. Unless I share in all of his benefits, I share in none of them. If I do not have the whole Christ, I have no Christ. Or as Calvin puts it memorably, Christ cannot be divided up into pieces. Theological positions and churches that teach second blessings and third blessings and fourth blessings and on and on and on just leave you chasing something that you never attain to. The gospel comes complete. And you believe in Christ. And Christ grants you everything that is his that you need in the gospel. This then, Gaffin adds at the end, is the core salvation applied the core of salvation applied, the heart of the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, union with Christ by spirit-worked faith. In truth, though commanded of all, only the one in Christ can obey this moral obligation to rejoice in the Lord as he should. And this leads us to a third and final observation from our text briefly here in Philippians 4 4 we read again rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice the eschatological hope of everlasting joy this call to joy is always it is always a call and it's a call to do it always It is an everlasting joy to which new covenant believers are called. Recall the text we read from Isaiah 35.10, Isaiah 51.11 or 61.7, all speaking of the everlasting joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. This joy the believer has, has been inaugurated, but listen, it will never be consummated. It has been inaugurated, but it will never be consummated. What do I mean by that? In fact, being joy in the Lord, it is joy that is born out of my knowing of Christ, and Christ is infinite. I will never know Christ fully. And if Christ is sharing with me a joy that is his joy, I will never experience the fullness of that joy, but will rather be being blessed with the discoveries of that joy forevermore. It is true that one day, by grace, as stated in Matthew 25, verse 23, that we will enter into the joy of, 
of our master. But again, being his joy and being himself infinite, we will spend eternity growing in it. This, in short, is the command, its sphere, and its permanence. And with that in mind, I want to briefly make a couple of applications corresponding to these particular observations we've made. The command to rejoice in the Lord far exceeds anything we've ever done. In light of joy being the inescapable command that rests upon all men, let me speak first to those of you that are outside of Christ. This means you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. And be careful here as an adult not to just think, oh, what he means is it's time to speak to the children. Because that's not the case. I've lived plenty long enough to have seen many adults come to Christ for the first time. Men and women who assumed they were saved and they were fine. I think I've told our church this story, but it, um, it always amazed me when I was about a 15-year-old boy to be sitting in church after the service. And this was, I grew up in a typical Southern Baptist church. And after the, uh, after the service, we had the altar call and the preacher would come down front. And many of you probably come from a background like that. Don't mistake the absence of an altar call for the absence of an invitation to come to Christ, but that's another story. But I remember sitting there one day, and I was watching this couple go down to the front, and they were in their 80s, and he was a retired pastor. He had been a pastor for some 50 years, and his wife had come down that night to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, how tragically sad that she spent so many years under the gospel and never realized that she was around the gospel, but she didn't get the gospel. She was surrounded and like saturated in the gospel environment, but never really heard it. But finally, God had mercy on her, and she heard the gospel for the first time. But in light of the inescapable command of joy, Resting on all men, you who are outside of Christ, this is a day for you to hear the invitation of the Lord Jesus. And you need to repent. And you need to believe in the gospel. Because the joy of which I speak, you will never experience outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have been in church for years. You may have had the gospel all around you, but you never got it. You never truly got it. Don't let shame of that today keep you from repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and from calling on him in whom you can be complete and in whom you will find everlasting joy. That wonderful statement of a man in the history of the church who 
once said, you will ever be restless, or the soul is ever restless until it finds its rest, its peace in Christ Jesus. God has made you to know him. God has made you for his glory. God has made you to taste of his joys. But you have spent your life, whether your life is five years old or 55 or 85, whether you're young or old, are you hearing me? You have spent your life for lesser joys. And you have chosen the benefits of being in the creation of God, and you have mistaken them for the benefactor. You have chosen the creature, and you have forsaken the creator. Do you see what happens? Every day, listen, every day you taste joys. You taste them all the time. You have a meal. God gives you food to eat. You put on a new pair of shoes. You you get a new outfit. You go to work. You look at a baby and you you kiss their face. I was just coming in from the the restroom during Sunday school and and Jeremy was there and little Genevieve was down sitting on the floor and he was getting her some water. I looked at her, she smiled, and I made myself think for a minute, she's smiling at me. I think she was smiling at Dad. Maybe she was smiling at the water. I don't know. You are blessed with so many privileges and so many opportunities to have joy in the world. But listen to me. Listen. Every joy you taste in the world will one day be gone. Only the joy of Christ will last. It is the only joy that will last. Every other joy, the greatest joys, the most amazing joys... Kids, your favorite toy that you love one day will be at the bottom of your toy box and probably not too far. I can't tell you how many times I've had kids get excited and thrilled about a kid meal toy and the next day it's in the back seat of my car or it's on the floor of my house where I can step on it. And we're no bigger the older we get. We just get bigger toys. The difference in boys and men is what? The price of their toys? Careful, ladies, don't laugh too much. It's the same for all of us. We pursue, you pursue joys that simply won't last. Be careful. Guard yourself from the idols of pursuing joys that won't last. Guard your heart from that. Watch over your soul. Watch over one another. C.S. Lewis once said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Your soul was made for Christ. And nothing else will ever satisfy. Nothing. No amount of money. 
No amount of promotions, no amount of education, no amount of toys, no amount of clothes, no amount of friends, no amount of sex, no amount of anything in the world will satisfy your soul other than Jesus Christ. And friend, if you are here today and you are pursuing temporary pleasures, you will find yourself with nothing in hell forever. You will have your reward in this life and in the life to come. You will have nothing. And God gives you today. Today, he gives you to repent of false pursuits and fake joys and to take Christ. He offers the gospel to you. You must, you must choose Christ because only what is done for Christ and only Christ himself and his joys that he gives will ever last. the joy that you have pursued in the world. Luke records for us the words of Jesus that will one day come to an end because it is under Christ's curse. Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh or have your joy now, for you will mourn and weep. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 25, There is coming a day of captivity for the nation of Judah, and they'd be carted off for 70 years of captivity. And during that time, he he speaks of a lament. He says, there's going to come a day when you're going to leave and depart, and all your joys are gone. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation 18, verses 19 to 24, Christ gives a lament for Babylon. One of the striking phrases in Revelation chapter 18 is that the music of Babylon comes to an end. I often think about music as I get older. I never was a real big music guy. I love to sing and all that kind of stuff, but I was never a real music guy. And I think of what, what value people place in music. Isn't it it amazing how, you know, this is the greatest song ever. And I'm sitting there sometimes in restaurants or stores, and they'll start playing, you know, the the 80s greatest hits or whatever. The only songs I know on the radio. And I don't know who's even singing them, probably. I just know that sounds familiar. But when I was a kid, that was so important. And as I've grown older, it's just not that important. And I'm not trying to judge you if you like music. That's not the point. But you understand that there is coming a day when all the world's music will be rendered silent. It'll be gone. This presses upon the believer, not just the unbeliever. Because while you and I are in this world, we are tempted to lesser joys as well. And I would ask you, believer, have you settled for lesser joys? Are you you drawn away after lesser toys when Christ is here? Christ is at your disposal. Christ, not not at your beck and call as if he's like some kind of genie in a bottle, but, but he is here. He is near. And he offers 
all that we need for true life and true godliness. And brother and sister, if your heart has been taken away by other less satisfying pleasures, turn from that today. Turn from that and look back to Christ. This is not the kick me while I'm down moment. This is the time to call upon you to turn away from that and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, understanding that this call to rejoice is a call to rejoice in the Lord and not simply in things, even good things. There is a need for us to not simply repent, but to renew, to renew our commitment, to renew our focus and our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. Henry Airy, who once was a provost at Queen's College, once wrote this regarding this particular text in Philippians, and I thought it was very helpful calling the believer to to renew his look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, It will not be amiss yet a little more particularly to look into the reasons why it is so needful to rejoice in the Lord always and why, why we are so hardly persuaded to rejoice in the Lord always. Who seeth not that considereth Anything that mighty enemies we always have to fight with all, the flesh within us to snare and deceive us, the world without us to fight and wage war against us, the devil ever seeking like a roaring lion whom he may devour. Who seeth not what fightings without, what terrors within, what anguishes in the soul, what griefs in the body, What perils abroad, what practices at home, what troubles we have on every side. When then Satan, that old dragon, casts out many floods or persecutions against us, when wicked men cruelly, disdainfully, and despitefully speak against us, when lying, slandering, and deceitful mouths are opened upon us, when we are mocked and jested at and had in derision of all them that are about us, when we are afflicted, tormented, and made the world's wonder, when the sorrows of death compass us and floods of wickedness make us afraid and the pains of hell come even into our own soul, what is it that holds up our heads that we sink not? How is it that we stand either not shaken or if shaken yet not cast down? His answer, he says here, is it not our rejoicing which we have In Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have found that your own soul is weighed down and overwhelmed by the things of the world, that the world presses in upon you, says, come to me, take this, take this, take this, this will make you happy, this will will give you joy to your soul. Let me encourage you today to rejoice in the Lord. Stir up your heart to rejoice in Christ and the things of Christ. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I shall yet what? I will praise him. Now maybe nobody here ever has struggles, and nobody here is ever discouraged, and nobody here is ever depressed. Answer, no. We're all weak. We're all frail. Brothers, put your hope 
in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord and the strength of his might. Nehemiah 8.10, Nehemiah says to those men who are coming back to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When Satan comes, and he will come, when the world and the flesh and the devil press about you, you rejoice in the Lord. You place your hope and your attention back at the rock-solid, glorious being of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing just to say, finally, and that is just to re-engage in this in a daily and regular basis by putting your mind on things that are above. Let me take you to one text and we'll be done. Colossians chapter 3. If I can find the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, or two verses. I'm still not in Colossians, I'm in Philippians. Oh, somebody help me. All right, Colossians 3, here we go. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Notice the relationship. If you've been raised up with Christ, if you're a believer, if you're truly in Christ, then keep doing what? Keep seeking the things above. It's not just a one-time deal. You try it today, it doesn't work, and so you're done. I'll try that again next month. No, you keep seeking the things that are above. Mothers at home with your children, keep seeking the things that are above. Fathers struggling with your sons and trying not to hit them with a two-by-four because you think that's the best discipline measure, sometimes I've come close. Keep seeking the things above. Struggling with sin. Probably because your eyes are on sin. Keep seeking the things that are above. Keep seeking the things that are above. Why? Because Christ is there, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It says that Christ is there. There's something, I want to say something else there, because it's not something else, it's actually Christ. It's another way of thinking about it. When he says in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the what? Enter into the joy of your master. Why? Because my joy is where? My joy is in heaven. My joy is in heaven because Christ is in heaven. The Spirit is in heaven. The Father is in heaven. God is in heaven. I'm sure God fills all things. Yes. Where can I go from your spirit? I understand that. But the Bible often points us to heaven to think about God and his glory and his greatness. And friends, listen, your mind and my mind need to get off of the earth. I think of my dad who used to tell me, get your mind out of the what? Get your mind out of the gutter. I say that to teenage boys a lot. Get your mind out of the earth. It's just like the gutter. Look, there are many wonderful things down here, but you need to have a right perspective of them, and you can't have a right perspective of the things in the world if you don't have your mind first where? In heaven, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. John says the world is what? It's passing away. And everyone who does the world's bidding is passing away as well. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And I, like Paul, will say it again. Rejoice. May God help us do that together as a church. What a joy to have walked these few weeks through this little book with you. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, you who are our joy, you who are our salvation. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that the fruit that you bring forth in our lives is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us in this, in the coming days, as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things of the world that pull us away. Oh God, help us to get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and to rejoice always in the Lord to rejoice. Bless you for your kindness to us. Bless you for your redeeming work. In Jesus' name we pray.